Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 90. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this in my bedroom closet on October 1st, 2022, in New Orleans. We are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. The key prerequisite for this episode is Opakankana's War, episode 87 as Apple reckons them, and three behind this one in other apps. It's 1622, and we're back in Virginia. Opakankana leads the group of tribes known as the Powhatan Confederacy. He has masterminded an eight-year plan to lull the English into a false sense of security, suffering their indignities, and building the loyalty of the tribes in the region who had made separate treaties with the foreigners at the end of the First Anglo-Powhatan War in 1614. Opakankana's carefully laid plans were almost exposed in the fall of 1621, when Esme Sitchams, the so-called Laughing King of the Akamak tribe on the eastern shore, alerted the English that Opakankana was planning an attack. Opakankana denied it, saying, The sky should sooner fall than peace be broken. And then, on the morning of March 22, 1622, the sky fell. Tribes from all over the region, now living casually in and around the English in productive peace, attacked simultaneously, killing at least 347 non-Indians, mostly English, in just that day. This was the beginning of the Second Anglo-Powhatan War, and it would last 10 years. News of Opakankana's war, like any other news in those days, could travel no faster than a ship under sail. In London, the directors of the Virginia Company and everybody else remained blissfully unaware that anything was amiss for almost four months when a ship called the Seaflower finally arrived carrying letters that described the shocking ambush. By then, word had spread up the coast of North America. The leaders of the tiny colony at Plymouth already knew about the attack and the extent of English casualties, and it figured into their calculations in dealing with the tribes in their area. Of course, the English in New England numbered only a few more than a hundred, a scant settlement compared to the roughly 1,300 English spread out in towns and plantations along the Chesapeake on the eve of the attack. As even fairly recent and only vaguely attentive listeners already know, the wise leaders of the pilgrims kept their heads, figuratively and literally, and were ultimately rewarded for their restraint. When the flower and chivalry of the Virginia Company and its investors did learn of the attack, they were enraged. Here's how David Price, in his book Love and Hate in Jamestown, describes it, quote, the news of the massacre forced the English, gentlemen investors, members of parliament, and divines alike, to reconsider the entire ideology of coexistence and cultural assimilation in the new world. If Opakankana had been offended by the manifestations of that ideology, he would find its replacement still less congenial. Where English commentators had formally expressed disgust at the murderous practices of the Spanish colonials, the English view of the conquistadors would now be tempered with some admiration. For those involved in the Virginia Company, the events of March 22nd demanded not only revenge, but total and thorough revenge. 
In his hour of victory, Opakankana had set in motion nothing less than the inexorable destruction of his own people. Back to me. Price views Opakankana's attack as a strategic error, a, quote, blunder of seismic proportions. He, like the rest of us, is looking at the ultimate outcome of the war with a great benefit of hindsight. I'm not sure I agree with that framing. But let's see what happened next and then return for the official History of the Americans podcast assessment at the end of the episode. In addition to the human and material losses, the Virginia Company faced what we moderns would call a corporate communications problem. When a public company today suffers a catastrophe of some sort, product recall, fraud and in its internal controls, a scandal, vast potential liability, that sort of thing, there are immensely expensive crisis PR consultants who shape the corporation's messaging. We euphemistically call this damage control, even if the messaging per se does nothing to repair the substantive damage. So it was with the Virginia Company, which faced an existential crisis. Long-standing and attentive listeners will recall that the company had raised money from congregations in the churches of England, propounding a vision of an integrated North America where Protestant English and converted Indians would live in peace. This had been the promise of the marriage and conversion of Pocahontas, and it had been believed, even within the company. George Thorpe, by 1620 one of the company's important investors, had given up everything to move to the James River and build a school for Indian boys to learn the English religion and civic folkways. The directors commissioned one of their own, Edward Waterhouse, to write the company's own version of the disaster. He scribbled up a book that presented and interpreted the various letters from Virginia and recounted the testimony of eyewitnesses who had sailed on the sea flower. It was not pretty. The basic talking points were, first, that the English had bestowed the great gift of their religion and technological wealth on the Indians. Second, that they had trusted the Indians and reached agreement with them. And third, that the Indians had in the ambush revealed themselves to be so beastly and treacherous that they were now considered beyond redemption. Not only was a counterattack called for, and not only would it be just and fair for it to be brutal, but now the company didn't have to worry about the silly rights of the Indians in their land. Quoting Waterhouse from Price's book, Because our hands which before were tied with gentleness and fair usage, are now set at liberty by the treacherous violence of the savages, not untying the knot, but cutting it, so that we, who hitherto have had possession of no more ground than their waste, and our purchase at a valuable consideration to their own contentment, gained may now by right of war and law of nations invade the country and destroy them who sought to destroy us, whereby we shall enjoy their cultivated places, turning the laborious hoe into the victorious sword. Waterhouse went on to cite the precedent previously rejected of Cortez in Mexico and Pizarro in Peru. In the Virginia Company narrative, the conquistadors had gone from nefarious slavers to exemplars and colonization, virtually overnight. 
To our ears, this is entirely disingenuous, and no doubt it must have seemed to at least some of the more knowledgeable English at the time. It's important to remember, though, that it is possible and even probable that Waterhouse believed every word. He wrote with a passion that suggests conviction, at least in that less emotive time. How could that be? Well, he'd never been to Virginia, and the only things he could rely upon were largely sanitized accounts prepared by the local leaders for, as we would say today, corporate. There was, no doubt, a lot of sugarcoating of the real conduct of the English in Virginia over the last 15 years. And it must be said, the English of that time genuinely believed that their efforts to convert Indians to their religion would save them from unspeakable horrors in their afterlife. To be sure, they were after profit, but many of them believed in the company's higher purpose, just as I am sure there are, or at least were, Google executives who actually believed their motto, Don't be evil. Just goofing, cool your jets, don't delist me, Google. That would be evil. Finally, the English truly had a different notion of land use than the Indians. They believed that land needed to be used openly to be owned, at least when there were no courthouses in which deeds recorded ownership. The lawyers among you can see the faintest echo of that idea in the English common law doctrine of adverse possession, which converts the ownership of land from a party who seemingly has abandoned it to another who uses it. Of course, the tribes of the region not only didn't see things that way, they actually were using the land. But there is no reason that Waterhouse, even in good faith, would have understand the usage of land in the Indian manner. Whether or not Waterhouse was writing in good faith, he was clearly also writing with purpose, as any good PR flack does. Opakankanad made the Virginia Company look like fools, he had made a mockery of the promises they had made to their investors and seemingly planned a complex and dispersed attack over a period of years right under their noses. There was no way that the Virginia Company could take any other position. To be sure, there were dissenters within English elites. The great poet John Donne, then dean of St. Paul's Cathedral, preached in favor of the colony staying the course and realizing the vision of the brutally killed George Thorpe. Of course, it was Thorpe's vision of Christianized Indians that had so enraged the Pamunkeys that they had tortured him before killing him. So maybe that wasn't a great idea either. The always opinionated and extremely realistic John Smith, who had last seen Virginia in 1609, construed Opakankana's war as validation of his own tough-minded approach. He tried to leverage the now vengeful attitude of the Virginia Company into another ride to the New World, suggesting himself to command a detachment of a hundred professional soldiers who would set things straight in a hurry. The company thought this was a good idea, but claimed it didn't have the money to support Smith's expedition and suggested he capitalize it himself, to be compensated by any plunder he might recover. Smith knew, of course, that there was no true plunder in Virginia, only toil and the eventual proceeds of agriculture. He stormed off in a huff, which was, to be fair, Smith's usual move. 
The outrage in the upper echelons of English society grew, and soon the company found itself on the receiving end of a lot of weapons that were increasingly obsolete in European combat, but would be useful against indigenous peoples who had not invented industrial war. King James gave the company a huge store of basically obsolete weapons and equipment. A thousand halberds, a thousand light muskets, 300 pistols, 100 armored vests, 400 chainmail shirts, 2,000 helmets, and 400 bows and 800 sheaves of arrows. Basically, James was doing the same thing as the eastern NATO countries did when they sent Ukraine all their old Warsaw-packed weapons early in the Russo-Ukraine War. The bows and arrows put the Virginia Company in a difficult position. They were justifiably worried that the Indians, who were much better archers, would capture arrows with metal heads and turn them on the English. But they couldn't just turn down a gift from the king. One simply did not do that. So they took the bows and arrows and sent them to their colony in Bermuda, and there they remained. The rest of the arms would arrive in Virginia in late 1622. After the attack, Sir Francis Wyatt, then governor of the colony, ordered the consolidation of the far-flung survivors, still 900 or so, into Jamestown itself or one of five designated plantations deemed adequately defensible. Not surprisingly, plans for the Indian College were scrapped, and in the moment at least, the English abandoned a lot of the land they'd acquired by one means or another from the tribes in the region. Opakankana's war, which was actually a counterattack and a long struggle, had achieved early success. But by the end of June, even before anybody in London knew that the sky had fallen, the English were launching their first retaliatory raids. Sir George Yardley led attacks in September and into the fall against the Wayanaks, the Warakoyaks, the Nansamans, and the Pamunkeys. Now let's go to James Horne's description of the fighting from his book about Opakankanak, quote, Knowing they could not defeat soldiers wearing armor and wielding muskets and swords, the Indians responded by avoiding pitched battles and withdrawing as soon as the soldiers approach. George Wyatt noted in a letter to his son that for the Indians, flight is the manner of their fight, and so praise them for their order and discipline. Indians would also occasionally ambush the English in quick and deadly attacks, and on at least one occasion the Pamunkeys used firearms against Yardley's raiding party. Governor Wyatt subsequently reported that, whereas in former times the Indians had been wary of English military capability, now they dare maintain an open war with our people, and being armed with our weapons and having learned the use of our guns can brave our countrymen at their very doors. Shortly before his death, the illustrious warrior Nemanatinu had been training his warriors how to fire muskets, yet for him, as for Opakankanas, securing powder and shot from the English remained a challenge. Back to me. In August, the company sent a letter to Governor Wyatt. It would have been described as throwing him under the bus if there had been buses to throw people under back then. Quote, we have to our extreme grief understood of the great massacre executed on our people in Virginia, and that in such a manner as is more miserable than the death itself, 
to fall by the hands of men so contemptible, to be surprised by treachery in a time of known danger, and almost guilty of the destruction of the blindfold and stupid entertaining of it, which the least wisdom or courage suffice to prevent even on the point of execution, circumstances that do add much to our sorrow. Governor Wyatt might have been a knight and a gentleman, but it's hard to believe he did not breathe a naughty word on reading that letter. This was the worst sort of corporate blame-shifting, insofar as the settlers in Virginia had been doing their level best to satisfy the mandates of the company, especially in the years since Pocahontas's fateful trip to London regarding the conversion of the Indians and the construction of an integrated, mutually dependent economy in the region. Another such letter came with the king's armaments in late 1622, this time reproving Wyatt for having abandoned so much land during his consolidation in the weeks following the attack. Quote, We conceive it a sin against the dead to abandon the enterprise till we have fully settled the possession, for which so many of our brethren have lost their lives. Back to me. Again, Wyatt must have fumed. Imagining his rage, I can't help but point out that this argument is always used by domestic critics of a military retreat. We Americans have heard it many times in the years since World War II. We've heard it in the last couple of years. I very much suspect it was not a new argument in 1622. Sometimes it's a valid criticism and sometimes it isn't. As an argument, it's always potent and it always stings because the people who make the decision to withdraw really don't want to refer to the honored dead as sunk costs, even if that is what they are. The company further admonished the leaders on the ground to hammer the Indians at all opportunities, quoting Price. The council then repeated its admonition to pursue unstinting warfare, a sharp revenge upon the bloody miscreants it directed, even to the measure that they intended against us, the rooting them out for being longer a people upon the face of the earth. In short, a war of extermination against Opakankana's tribes. Wyatt responded, both reporting on the extent of the English response and calling the company out for its own role in the disaster. We have slain diverse, burnt their towns, destroyed their fishing weirs and corn. It is most apparent that they are an enemy not suddenly to be destroyed with a sword by reason of their swiftness of foot and advantages of the wood, but by the way of starving and all other means that we can possibly devise, we will constantly pursue their extirpation. By computation and confession of the Indians themselves, we have slain more of them this year than hath been slain before since the beginning of the colony. Back to me. Given the state of the record-keeping in the long years of conflict before the peace of 1614, Wyatt would have no way of knowing this. He was responding to inquiries from the capital, just as military commanders always do, by justifying his actions in terms his superior officers would want to hear. As with all counterinsurgency, and that is the sort of war the English were fighting, body counts had no actual military significance. 
but they had the practical value of appeasing the critics at home. Back to Wyatt for the calling out part, quote, Whereas in the beginnings of your letters by the ship True Love, you pass so heavy a censure upon us, as if we alone were guilty, you may be pleased to consider what instructions you have formerly given us to win the Indians to us by a kind entertaining them in our houses, and if it were possible to cohabit with us, and how impossible it is for any watch and wards to secure us against secret enemies that live promiscuously among us and are harbored in our bosoms, all accounts of the massacre and your own discourse may sufficiently inform you. Ouch. Wyatt told his bosses that they were full of it and he had receipts. I suppose he probably figured that nobody else would want his job at that moment, or perhaps he would be happy enough to be relieved of command and return to London. For the remainder of 1622 and into 1623... The war was a low-intensity struggle between the two sides. As we have seen, the English could not force a set-piece battle. This was asymmetric war of the worst sort, with raids from both sides and a profound degradation of the regional food supply. We do not know the extent of the dying among the tribes, but the English paid an enormous price. The winter of 1622-23 was a second starving time, more than 500 English and Africans died that winter. As it happened in the winter of 1609-1610, the deaths came so fast that the living could not bury the dead quickly enough. Sailors returned to England reported that bodies were left in the street, quote, so little cared for that they laid there until the hogs have eaten their corpses. Of course, the English had a huge advantage. They could reinforce their population, and the Indians couldn't. The Virginia Company stepped up its recruitment, promising wealth for new arrivals, who would be, in effect, buying in at the bottom. England had enough impoverished and even desperate people that it was always possible to attract more to the new world. Economic misery created a perverse advantage. So many English came to Virginia after Opecancana's attack that by the end of 1624, the population was back to the level of March 1622, notwithstanding at least 900 deaths in the first year of the war from attacks and starvation. We know from correspondence, though, that at least some of the new arrivals regretted having come almost immediately. Unlike the English in New England, Virginia continued to kill roughly 80% of new arrivals well into the 1620s, an astounding consumption of lives, even for the times. The Indians were clearly suffering, too. We do not know their losses, but they must have been substantial, because in March 1623, Opakankana proposed a truce. He sent a message to the plantation at Martin's Hundred, saying that Blood enough had already been shed on both sides. He proposed that the English allow his people to plant crops, and in return he would release 20 English, mostly women and children, he had taken captive the year before. The English saw this as an opportunity to turn the tables. Just as Opakankana had feigned peace for eight years while preparing his attack, the English now did the same. They accepted his terms, but planned for his defeat. 
George Sands, the treasurer of the colony in Virginia and brother of Sir Edwin Sands, whom we have met many times before, wrote that the English would, quote, make them as secure as we were, that we may follow their example in destroying them. Now let's go to Price's account, quote, The opportunity to betray Opakankana came on the very day the peace was ratified. On May 22, 1623, William Tucker sailed with a dozen colonists to the Pamunkey River to meet with a Powhatan leader and to receive the English captives. Opakankana was accompanied by the chief of the Kiskiak tribe and a large contingent of his own men. After many speeches were made on both sides, Tucker offered to share the contents of a large wooden cask of white wine that he had brought for the occasion. Wine that had been laced with poison by the colony's physician, John Pott. Tucker and his English interpreter made a show of drinking first. Their drinks had been drawn from a separate container out of the native site. Back to me. As many as 200 Indians died from poisoning. It must have been slow acting, since it's hard to imagine how they could have served so many quickly without red solo cups and a tap. Tucker freed the English captives, and as his men withdrew, they fired on the Indians still standing. Tucker believed he had killed both Opakankana and his brother Itoyatan, but they'd survived. Itoyatan would resurface within a year, but no English would see or hear of Opakankana for seven years until 1630. We have no explanation for his long absence other than the speculation that it took the already old man a long time to recover from his wounds. The Second Anglo-Powhatan War would continue at low intensity until 1632, but the constant flow of English reinforcements would wear down the Indians. By the time peace was declared, the tribes in the region were defeated, their spirit crushed, Worse, the English now felt justified in any abuse of Indians. It was in the 1620s, well after the arrival of the first Africans in 1619, that the English would follow the Spanish in the enslavement of Indians. And their population continued to grow. By 1629, the English population in Virginia would hit 2,900. And by 1634, there would be more than 5,000 English. There was a last casualty of the war. The Virginia Company's corporate flax had spun the war as flax do, but even the poor communications of the 17th century couldn't obscure the staggering body count. King James, who despised Sir Edwin Sands, the leader of the company, for reasons that were more entangled with English domestic politics than the failures in Virginia, appointed a commission to investigate the company. Americans today will recognize that particular move. Like most such commissions, its members knew what the king wanted it to find, and they dutifully published a report detailing the appalling loss of English lives in Virginia over the previous 15 years. James had what he needed, and after some back and forth with the company's directors, he effectively nationalized it. He withdrew the royal charter dating back to 1606 and converted the territory into a royal colony. 
The company's investors were wiped out. The 200,000 pounds that had been invested in the previous 16 years was wiped out with a stroke of James's pen. Virginia would remain a royal colony until the American Revolution, more than 140 years later. There remains the question, did Opakankana err in launching his war? Was his war a blunder of seismic proportions, as David Price says? It is, of course, easy enough to say that he did, and it was, in retrospect. Insofar as the English did not pack up after the initial attack, kept pouring settlers, soldiers, and money into their colonial project, and eventually subjugated and enslaved the Indians of the region. Had Opakankana acquiesced to English expansion, a lot of Indians who died in the years after the sky fell would not have died so soon. Many might have lived to ripe old age. And yet, Opakankana saw the future better than other Indian leaders and even the English. The English were going to take away the things that were important to his people. First, they had taken much of the best land. Now they were trying to take away their children as a means for imposing their own culture. The tragedy in this is that many of the investors and leaders of the Virginia Company thought that they were giving the Indians something wonderful, their own religion and its promise of salvation and the material and technological wonders of their rapidly modernizing civilization. But Opakankana, whether he was... Paquaquinio slash Don Luis, or had only spent long hours in conversation with him, knew how this would turn out, and it was not how the Virginia Company's boosters imagined. The great chief's vision was realistic. The indigenous reflection of John Smith, the man whose life Opakangana had decided not to take on that winter day in 1607. In the fullness of time, his civilization which the English did not even understand as civilization, would die, and so would his people. If there were any possibility of preventing that sad result, it would have to happen before the English became too strong. Maybe if he could push them out, as Powhatan had done for a few days in 1609, they wouldn't return to the Chesapeake for a long time. That was Opakankana's bet, which he might well have won, had his plans not been betrayed at Jamestown, and had he grabbed their capital and killed more of their leaders, perhaps the English would have left or sued for peace under entirely different terms. Even then, the tribes of the James River and the Chesapeake would have failed eventually, but had Opakankana won in 1622, they might have preserved their culture and their freedom for a lot longer than if he had done nothing. Opakankana survived and would launch the third and final Anglo-Powhatan War in 1644. That's another story we will tell someday, but it is spoiling nothing to say that war would fail too. None of that should distract us from the main point. Opakankana was a great Native American patriot and deserves to be remembered in the pantheon of such heroes as Sitting Bull, Crazy Horse, Chief Joseph... Geronimo, King Philip, Massasoit, and all those other household names. Never mind Powhatan. That he isn't probably has to do with the narrative spun by Virginia Company propagandists. Add to that hundreds of years of mythology from Virginia's first families, 
Being a Rolf, I can say that. And it is no wonder so few Americans know who Opa Kankana was. Now you do. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. Your emails have been super encouraging. Please keep them coming. Just got a batch of new pictures yesterday. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email directly at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. And please do me the great favor of giving the podcast a five-star rating on Apple, perhaps writing a review if you have it in you, and following me on Twitter and the Facebook page for the podcast. Until next time.